Well, good evening once again, Internet Land, and thank you so much for joining us on this next episode of This Heretical Life. I am, of course, Brian Thomas, and as always, am joined by my much handsomer sounding co-host, Adam Leggett. Good evening, Adam. Good evening, Brian. How's it going? It's going pretty well. Uh, it's going pretty well. I can't really complain. It's been a nice summer so far. We uh, we haven't seen, hasn't gotten too too hot. True. And um, I'm sure it will. You know, it's just still in uh, late June, moving towards early July. So right. I'm sure. <clears throat> well, as of degrees. as of today, because of the rain we got earlier today, I think the the low tonight's supposed to be like in the fifties. Which oh is, yeah, which is crazy and awesome at the same time. So yeah, yeah. But uh, but like you said, there's still a lot of summer left to go. So and it is Arkansas. It so, is. So here, it'll you know. probably for it's like for every nice day it gives you in the summer, it's going to give, it's going to take away three days in the fall when it should be nice. (laughs) And it's going to be like, you know, that nice day we gave you in June, right? Interest is two days extra. So we're going to give you three days of a hundred degrees in mid October. Right. Yeah. How, how do you like the air conditioning on, on Thanksgiving or Christmas? I mean, I, I can remember, a Christmas day where we were like wearing shorts and may have even had the air conditioning on. You know, oh, for sure. Not, yeah. We're not outside the realm of possibility. Yeah. I've gone, I've gone on the Christmas uh, deer hunt in South Arkansas wearing short sleeves. Yeah. Yeah. yeah especially South Arkansas. South Arkansas is like a, you know how they say Texas is like a whole nother country. South Arkansas right. is like a whole nother uh, ecology down there and oh, weather definitely. pattern and atmosphere. It just plays by its own rules, which is basically no rules. Right. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. I was, we were driving home, my wife and I, uh, last, well, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago now. And it was so crazy because like you, you start out in Fort Smith, which is kind of in a basin because of the river that flows yeah, through right here. Yeah. But, but still it's, you know, as far as sea level goes, it's higher than South Arkansas. So we were driving back home and it was about like, uh, I guess probably about Fordyce, Arkansas, maybe a little bit closer to Little Rock, but it was kind of like, you could almost feel it through the AC, like the moisture content in the car just started to like, like rise <laughs> a little bit and get a little stickier. And as I just turned to Jessica, I was like, oh man, this is, it's, it's just different. And I mean, yeah. it's, yeah. Uh, it's so much more um, I don't know if oppressive is the right word, but it, it, is. it like, sure feels a lot more oppressive. The humidity, like the atmosphere in South Arkansas is oppressive. You yeah. Know? And it doesn't even really get, because there are things that I miss about South Arkansas. We have family down there, a lot of friends. Uh, right. I really liked living in El Dorado, but I do not miss the weather. Because even uh, in, in South Arkansas, when you say today the weather is kind of nice, what you really mean is today the weather is not trying to kill me. Right. And that's, that's nice. You know, it's like, it's like Stockholm syndrome weather. You have been brainwashed into thinking a day that is not dreadful is nice when Mm -hmm. really it's just the day that the, the weather kidnapper is not trying to (laughs) murder you with, with moisture in the air. So Mm. Um, speaking of kidnapping, this is totally random and we have not discussed this at all, Okay, but I have, I have never seen the Goonies all the way through. Uh, so I started that today as I had time throughout the day and I've been watching through it. I, I I don't know what it was about the, I guess it was in the eighties, right? Yeah. The Goonies Mm -hmm. came out. 
of course, a really young Josh Brolin, which really threw me for a second because I, I forgot he was in that. He movie. plays this, you know, teenage kid. He probably is a teenage kid, honestly, but he just seems kind of old to me now. So it's kind of it's kind of crazy. But I digress. There's a lot of intrigue and there's kidnapping that takes place, all that kind of stuff in this film. But I was just kind of amazed at how not family appropriate that movie is. <laughs> it it's it's got a lot of like innuendo and language and things like that. I've always heard of it as kind of like this family film, right? This teenage yeah, yeah. coming of age adventure film for kids to watch with the family. But there's a lot of inappropriate stuff in that movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about. Um, that era et e. uh, might would be another example yeah There's, you know and and even films and tv shows now that are popular that are set in that time period like stranger things on netflix or even mm-hmm. um it chapter one um and like part of chapter two which you know based on the stephen king book that's set in the 80s like it's it's kind of the same thing although it is not built as a kids movie it is very much like hey kids in the 80s were just uh, you know, they were pretty, uh, pretty out there. Adam, this is episode 20. And so this means that as we did with episode 10, we're going to, we're going to have a little back and forth. So, sure. uh, and last time we, we started off, uh, back in episode 10, we were going to talk about the papacy. And I think we ended up more talking about sort of, uh, church structure and church hierarchy in general. And we talked about yeah. priests and bishops and a lot of different things. I don't think we really got to the papacy and the papacy is, is a pretty big topic. Like sure. you shared a podcast with me um, a month or so or longer ago. Uh, that was kind of a back and forth between an Orthodox priest and, and a Catholic. Um, I don't know if he was a priest or an apologist or something about the papacy, yeah. but that thing was long. That was like, they should have had an intermission so I could get up and go refill my popcorn <laughs> and go to the bathroom. Um, but we're not, I mean, I don't think we're really interested, uh, in talking for two plus three hours, however long, however right. long it was in the papacy. So, uh, what we had decided, uh, Oh, viewing audience is to sort of narrow it down a little bit and basically talk about, uh, Matthew chapter 16, um, the, the famous or infamous passage, um, where Jesus, where, where Peter confesses Christ and, and then Jesus says, you know, blessed are you and uh, the, upon this rock, I will build my church and just sort of, all right, well, here's sort of the Orthodox, how we view it. And like, I expect all my Protestant friends, if I still have any to like cheer me on, because we're right. probably going to have some similar takes on this a little bit. And then Adam's going to kind of walk us through the Catholic, uh, understanding and, and view what the Catholic tradition teaches about that verse. Um, I don't, I don't think it's fair. Well, let's start with this, Adam. Is, is it fair to say, I, I don't think it's fair to say, cause I, I, I don't want to like paint the Catholic church into a corner. Right. Um, so is it fair to say that this verse, you know, does most of the heavy lifting or, or is that going a little too far? When we talk about the relationship between this verse and sort of the Catholic doctrine of of papal um, papal supremacy, I think we would argue that it is the most explicit passage you could turn to in defense of the papacy in Scripture. I don't think we would argue that it's the only one by any stretch of the imagination. And like we've talked about before, there's a lot of things that come into play with 
Catholic and Orthodox hermeneutic in how we read and interpret and understand scripture. Uh, there's topology that comes into play. Mm-hmm. There's taking very close or paying very close attention to how God has interacted with his people throughout history, all of covenant history from Adam all the way to, you know, through the end of the New Testament, obviously. Uh, And there's also, how do I put this? There's also this idea or concept of taking the most, the, the loudest and most prominent and letting that be the loudest and most prominent. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Understanding that there may be other ways to apply that a particular passage. Uh, There may be other ways to glean truth from that passage, but the most immediate and prominent way of, of understanding the most immediate context of the passage has to be the, the one that um, kind of reigns supreme. So I say all that to say, try to answer your question. Yes and no. It probably is the heaviest lifter, but we would we would also say that even if this passage weren't here, we would we would argue you you could still very easily come to the conclusion we've come to. Okay. No, that makes that makes sense. And and that's that's kind of how I understood it as far as like this would be use a baseball term this would be your cleanup hitter. But sure. If for whatever reason your cleanup hitter was out of the lineup, you feel you still feel confident one through nine that you got a solid batting order that can get runs across. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for uh, sure. So yeah, that's fair. And and I read um, so you know rewind three almost three and a half years ago now when I was um, you know approaching the the precipice of of Baptist um, thought and was going to fling myself off into the the great chasm that is um, more ancient traditions and. Um, I got it. I borrowed it from you, and I think we've had disagreements as to what happened to it because I don't have it anymore, and I don't think you have it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened to the book. Um, but you, you let you let me borrow a book. I believe it was called uh, "Upon This Rock" that yep. sort of laid out um the the doctrine, sketched it out. I'm sure it's much more in depth than than that of of papal uh, supremacy. And I remember reading it and um. And for whatever reason, it just didn't like. There was a lot of it that's like this. This sort of makes sense, but for whatever reason, some of the pieces didn't didn't fit for me. Some of the things didn't quite line up. And that's like I said, that's been almost three and a half years ago, so I don't remember what all of them were. Um, but I do remember this passage. I mean, this passage was obviously the the title of the book was sort of taken from this passage, and it's one that gets a lot of attention. So. Um, for our readers out there who may not have the, their Bible in front of them, shame upon you. Always have your Bible with you and ready to be opened when you're listening to the podcast because you never know when we might refer to it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, beginning in um, verse 13 of uh, Matthew, of the 16th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, St. Matthew's Gospel. So uh, Matthew 16, 13, it says, um, and I'm reading King James Version because uh, the study app that I use is in King James. Uh, it says, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and 
uh, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth thou shalt be loosed in heaven. Then he charged, uh, then charged to his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus Christ. Um, so there's a couple. Obviously, the the argument kind of hinges on uh, the words of Jesus here, but it, it almost seems like there's two arguments that I've heard within this passage, uh, arguing sort of for papal supremacy, and and one is the phrase. You know, thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church. And then I've also seen a lot of attention given to the phrase, you know, I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth thou shalt be loosed in heaven. So, I mean, they're sure. obviously right next to each other. There's there's a lot of interdependence on them, but, of all, but they're also sort of treated as two separate sort of clauses, you know, semi-independent clauses. The Orthodox, we, we read this passage and, and to begin with, like there, there is a great reverence for Peter in the Orthodox tradition. Sure. Yeah. Um, there's not, even though we disagree with, you know, with, with the, the Catholic church and with our Catholic brothers, no, no one in the Orthodox church yells at me for calling y'all brothers, but whatever. Um, as far as what that looks like and sort of how far does that go? Um, like Peter is, there's no disagreement in the Orthodox Church that Peter was, um, you know, primary or one of the primaries among the disciples. Uh, Peter, James, and John were sort of a set apart three. And within those three, uh, Peter is is very prominent. You know, is is the most prominent uh, of the twelve disciples that we see in Scripture. Um, mm-hmm. I was reading through. there's some quotes from a lot of quotes from St. John Chrysostom, who's very revered in in the Orthodox church and how many times he refers to Peter as the leader, as uh, there was a a word he used, um, Corpheus, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, which is like a a leader or conductor sort of of a choir uh, that he used to refer to Peter. And then he would use the plural of it to use sometimes to refer to James and John or Peter and John or to, to all three of them. So even though we don't go so far as, you know, to say that these passages um, or any other passages say that there's this sense of uh, supremacy invested in Peter and in those that come after him, there is, I mean, say there's no dispute, but Orthodox, tend to be a little bit like Baptists that we can dispute a lot of things that we probably ought not dispute. Sure. Um, that Peter is, Peter is, is special. Like among the disciples, Peter is special. And among the, the patriarchs, the, the Bishop of Rome, um, was, was special. So, um, that, that there's not any argument that Peter was just like an also ran or that like the, the idea right. of Peter's, right some degree of set apartness of Peter, like that's not something the Orthodox say, oh, the Catholics just manufacture that. Like, no, Peter was, Peter was special, mm-hmm. um, on, you know, honored, um, honored among, among equals, I think is the phrase or something like that. Um, so when we look at this, this first clause in Matthew 16, 18, that thou art Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. Uh, one of the first things that we tend to point to uh, and then I've heard, this is like, I've heard this pointed to, uh, by Baptist all my life. Uh, so I'm hesitant to repeat it, but <laughs> uh, 
like, you know, thou art Peter, which is, you know, Petros, which is means, you know, piece of a rock or like a little rock. Uh, so basically thou art rock. And then upon this rock, you know, will I build my church? Um, but I think there, I, I think it matters that it's not the same word mm-hmm. that it's, you know, similar, but different. And one sort of probably, probably uh, overly fancy to call it a hermeneutic. But when I read passages like this and I'm kind of asking, all right, does this passage mean X? Like when we talk about the Eucharist, does Jesus saying, this is my body and my blood mean that we're to understand it as his body and his, and his blood. I think, Mm -hmm. well, if he had wanted us to understand something different, could he have said it differently? Right. Um, And this is one instance where I think, like yeah, he, he could have. Like if if he had wanted us to understand Peter as being the rock upon which he was going to build his church in this really really set apart way, then why did he not just use the same word twice? Why did he not just say, "Thou art the rock, and upon this exact same rock I will build my church"? So, as someone who um, has spent a lot of time speaking and, and, and writing, um, I try to be very deliberate in how I use words and in what words I use. And so when I see that it's not the same word, but that it's, it is sort of, there's a distinction like the, 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 the use of little rock and big rock seems to be drawing both a, 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 um, a little idea of symmetry, like comparison, like it's, they're similar, but also, also saying, yes, we're going to look at them and see, oh yes, we can sort of see the, the, the parallel there, but also to say, but we're also going to recognize it's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like we're going to look at it and say, yes, Peter, the little rock, you know, kind of like, sometimes I think of this as like, Peter's like the little rock that could, like the little engine that could, you know, but there's also this distinction between what is, Peter, who is this, this little rock, um, or I think St. John Chrysostom called him at one point, called him the unbroken rock. He referred to Peter. Um, what's the difference or is there, are we invited or expected to draw a distinction between Peter, the little rock, the piece of a rock and the great rock, or or like, I think you could almost literally translate it the massive rock, uh, upon which he will build his church. And so I, I, I think, like reading it just from like a language perspective, my thought is you're meant to draw a distinction. You're not meant to look at that and say one e- equals the other. Okay. Um, but it's like one is similar to the other, but is in some way distinct from it. Um, and so the, the, the Orthodox church teaches, which sounds, <laughs> I'll be like, I'll bit. it sounds a little bit, like a cop out, probably just because it's what I've heard yes. all my life. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I digress. Write that down. If it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, Brian. No. Um, but but so the, the Orthodox Church reads that and has studied that and, and believes the tradition holds that the, the rock refers to Peter's confession of faith and, and not to Peter himself and draws sort of a parallel between that passage and first um, Corinthians 10 four, I think where it says um, talks about drinking from the same spiritual drink for they drink of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock 
was Christ. And in there, it is the same word rock that Jesus says, that Jesus uses when he says, upon this rock, I will build my church, um, as, as opposed to being the, uh, the smaller special, but not supreme rock, mm, okay. uh, that was, uh, that was Peter. So do you want to, you want to push back on that a little bit before we get to the, the passage about the keys and, sure. and binding and loosing? Yeah. Um, so the quick answer from a Catholic perspective would be that Matthew was not originally written in Greek. It was written in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, uh, the distinction between masculine nouns and names and feminine is not as, it, it's not there. Like the distinction, you, you don't change the word in Hebrew uh, to distinguish between somebody's name and the thing that that name is. So whereas in Greek, you have a name of someone, but if you're going to describe the thing that that person is named after, you change it to the feminine, which is which is a different. It's it's a slightly different word when you do that. So in Hebrew, you would not have seen the distinction between kepha Peter and and upon this kepha rock I build my church. There would not be a, a difference. Um, so we know from church history that Matthew was not written in Greek; it was written in Hebrew. And so the Greek translations that we use to translate into English is actually a translation of the original text. And so in this passage in Hebrew, there would not have been the distinction that you see in, in Greek. Uh, it would have been, it would have read something like, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father is in heaven. Uh, I also say that you are Kepha, and upon this Kepha, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So that would be the, the quick answer. So this may be, this may be like a really dumb question, but are there um, like, are there Hebrew manuscripts that exist that predate Greek manuscripts that have it written in that way? That is a good question. I'm not and, sure. And, and this, I guess this is one thing that's sort of a distinctive and we probably haven't really talked about this much. There is a distinctive sure. between the East and the West um, as far as the, the West tends to use and, um, from what I understand, use and sort of values the right word, but tends to lean on Latin translations where, uh, of, of the Bible, like the, um, what is it? The Septuagint? Is that what I'm thinking of? The yeah. Latin. Well, that's the Septuagint. Septuagint is the, it's the Latin. No, excuse me. It's the Greek translation the Greek. of the Old okay, Testament. So, that's the Greek one. so yeah. the the Orthodox, the East, that usually has leaned more on Greek translations, and and the the West tended to lean on Latin translations. So the the Orthodox had the Septuagint. Don't tell my priest I got that wrong. Um, and 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 it, and it varies some within you know within Orthodoxy, but like the the Septuagint, the the Greek translation is in some ways and by some, I don't know how big a tradition it is, but like almost or, or similar to the way a lot of the Baptists that we knew growing up said like the King James, the English version of the Bible is the right. inspired version. Sure. Um, there's, there's a similar vein of thought in orthodoxy that the, the scripture is as it was written in its original language, what's inspired. And then there was also some sort of, inspiration i guess granted to the ones that translated it into greek mm -hmm. to to prevent things like like what, what you're talking about like if how convenient the orthodox, 
to prevent the things that I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I can't help it if God worked really hard to make sure your side loses. And they get up with God, Adam. Right. Um, but so so the Orthodox say, yes, yeah, we'd understand in Hebrew it would be the same word. But when it was translated, it was translated in such a way that did correctly reflect what church tradition understood about that passage as there uh-huh. being a distinction. Um, yeah, so I think the I'm trying to think of a good example. So forgive me if I if I can't come up with one. There's not any, so probably not. <laughs> um, I think we would we would say that it still doesn't like it would be only proper. Like the the difference in the the use of the one word versus the other is one is a proper name, and it would always be in the masculine formal form if it was a new is a name given to a person and that in just common everyday writing if you're going to describe that same thing you would use the feminine version of that word in in normal syntax Mm. so that there doesn't have to be a logical distinction between peter and the feminine version of that word in greek it would it would be like um, I don't know what it would be like. This is where that's, like, the, that's the best way I know how to. No, uh, that makes sense. I understand what you're saying, and I feel like this is where it does get really sort of technical, and and neither one of us are like scholars it's, of language, right, you know. For sure. And and this is one of those things that I do feel like it's weird for us, I think, as Americans and use English to think of people's names being the same as the names of things, you know, like Indians almost like it, it, it yeah, it's yeah. not a Western thing, but it's definitely a humanity thing. Like you can, yeah, you can look at all types of cultures from all over the world. You, you listen to like native American Indian names and it's like a horse that runs through the field or whatever, mm. you know, like mm. the, the way that it's transliterated literally, it sounds just like a normal like a, an, an act yeah, or a, yeah. an object or something like that. And, and English is sort of this, like we take, like if we wanted to name our son, you know, horse that runs like the wind to the field, we would go find a, a, a word in a different language that means yes, that and right. name him that rather than name him. Like this the is my daughter, thing. Gabrielle, my son Watson and my son, a uh, horse that runs through the field like a wind. Right. Which we thought about naming Clark, but uh, the birth certificate <laughs> people were like, that's too many words. So yeah, Having said all that, kind of going back to what you just mentioned a minute ago, we're not going to be able to give exhaustive answers the way that scholars can, but there are great exhaustive discussions about these things on YouTube and podcasts and by people that are far smarter than we are. So our hope and prayer, okay, (laughs) Um, far smarter than I am. Let's just, let's just stop there. But uh, so hopefully if at the very least it's an encouragement for people to to go search out. Yeah. You know, if, if you've never thought through this, like, okay, what is the difference between, you know, Hebrew and Greek and, and why does it matter that Matthew was not originally written in Greek or does it matter? Like all those types of questions, we can give our quick, you know, only slightly educated answers here, <laughs> but there are places for you to go. We would highly recommend and encourage you to go yeah. and, and check yeah. that out. Um, this is a sort of like a primer, like an introduction. I like the, the sure. podcast that you shared with me. Uh, I think it was Pints with Aquinas. Wasn't that who mm-hmm. it was? Yeah. Um, was uh, It was a really, really excellent and, and very in-depth 
like to the point right. that I listened to the first hour and then stopped and went back and started again. Um, cause like, all right, sure. listen to these guys again, kind of now that I've, I've kind of figured out kind of what rules they're playing by here. Um, for sure. And, uh, and go back into it and, and they do get into it pretty in depth. It was, it was a very, very good back and forth. I thought, yeah. um, so, um, so let's, let's move on to the next, uh, I mean, if, if you're satisfied, not convinced obviously, but if you're satisfied with the answer I gave, let's, let's move on to the next, uh, the next little section here. Yeah. I, I was, I was ready to move on to the next section. I was going to ask, do you want to, should we tell people first, like what the quintessential movie to watch on 4th of July is? Oh, um, yeah, I, I've come up with a couple of options, you know, what's, it's, what's your first option? My like first, I, said, I think there's different ways you can go. So I'm, I'm curious for, to hear what, what at least one of yours is. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to do one that may seem a little off. Uh, we'll go with Forrest Gump for like a quintessential American. It just covers so much. Yeah. As far as the American experience, which may or may not have been the point, but it goes through war and politics and just normal, you know, like poverty part of American life. Uh, especially in the South, to all kinds of things from this mm-hmm. one man's you know perspective, and goes through a time in history that was so wrought with upheaval and things being mixed up, and you know it's just I, I feel like it's a it's a great film to kind of encapsulate the whole of American uh, experience, at least to a certain degree. Obviously, no movie's perfect, but it's so it's so good. Tom Hanks is just masterful in uh in his acting ability there and it's one that kind of pull at the heartstrings a little bit so that'd be one uh I, i'm gonna i don't the other one i'm gonna go with lincoln uh it's 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 again, an excellent excellent film just like yes it, just from a cinema cinematic perspective and then daniel day lewis uh his portrayal of lincoln is just in he's just so so good and it's a, it's a great movie so yeah. I would I would throw one of those two out there for people to to choose between. That's such a, a well done film, and you're right. Daniel Day Lewis is is really good. So, um, so I was thinking like a, the first two that like come to mind. Um, neither I, I don't know that I would make either one the go to film, um, but like obviously Independence Day. Okay. Um, yeah. Is is just a great blockbuster, crowd pleasing kind of film. Sure. Um, I mean, it's not, I, I would not say that Independence Day is like an, a well done, good movie, but it's, it, it it's right. impressive for what it is as a sort of blockbuster popcorn fair, rousing American um, action film, you know, sure. it, it, Will Smith, you know, the star, I mean, Will Smith was well known. It was already very good, but that sort of is like, oh, Will Smith can like lead a blockbuster film because uh, sure. he really does. It's a fantastic Will Smith performance. Um, like not at all in the same way that Daniel do Daniel Day Lewis is great in Lincoln, <laughs> different right. kind of great, but like sure. like sure. Will Smith like commands the screen in in that film, which is impressive when you think about what else what everything is going on in that film. Um, I thought of the Patriot with with Mel Gibson, which is directed by the same guy. Now that I think about it, Roland Emmerich directed both of those mm. films, uh, and both of those are sort of like you know rousing feel good about America uh, kind of movie. But one that I think balances it a little better that still gives you sort of a, this is what's great about America, but balances it out with a little bit of like, these are the problems that America has um, is uh, 
Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, mm. which is not a Fourth of July movie by any stretch. Right. But I do think it's one where, where Capra does a pretty good job of saying, like, this is the ideal that that when right. realized makes America great and unique and special. But then also has here's sort of the machinations that have built up sort of in America, these systems that have sort of latched on into American society that defeat and work against those ideals, greed and the lust mm-hmm. of power and, and the lust of money. And sort of like, even though Frank, Frank Capra is famously the sort of feel good film director, like that movie really does have this tension between the, throughout the whole film of, you know, good and bad. And even though the ending is sort of uplifting, it, it doesn't really resolve that tension in a way other than a way like, all right, in this moment, Mr. Smith wins just because he finally kind of broke through to this one person. But right. but it, it still doesn't tell – it doesn't give you this sense like, oh, everything's better. America is fixed now. It's like, you know, those, those, those same problems that play Helm still exist, but that same idealism that drove Mr. Smith still exists too. You know, there's that sure. little scene in Mr. Smith where – um, the one page boy that kept the, like the Ranger button, like lifts up the lapel of his coat and shows Mr. Smith, like, Hey, I, I kept it. Like, I still believe in you after all the other pages have taken off their bucket buttons and thrown them away when they, you know, like framed him earlier. It's, there's just so many great moments in that film, um, that both portray sort of the, the hope and light of America. And as Mr. Smith says, the Capitol dome all lighted up and also really great moments that show you, kind of what the dark side of that is or can be, you know, right. when, when, uh, freedoms and liberties are used as a means by which to, you know, oppress other people or silence other people or, or build mm-hmm. an empire that you can use to get what you want. Sure. Um, so Mr. Smith goes to Washington, um, meet John Doe. I haven't seen that one in a while. That's another Frank Capra film, but I don't, mm-hmm. I, not quite as Americana, um, as Mr. Smith is. I also feel like somewhere in the back of my mind, there's a Western that would just be really great. Fourth of July film, maybe in similar in a similar vein to Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I feel like Ford Apache, which is not really traditionally one of my favorite John Ford, John Ford film draws some of those same sort of parallels because in that film, Henry Fonda's Fort commander is sort of the bad guy. Like he's the idiot. Right. Um, and, uh, Cochise, the Indian war chieftain is, he's very enigmatic throughout the film, but you do get the idea that there's a set of rules that he plays by sure, and that he respects. And the, 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 the sort of slaughter of Henry Fonda's cavalry troop at the end happens not really because Cochise is a bad guy, but because Henry Fonda broke the rules. Um, sure. You know, and Henry Fonda refused to be a man of honor. And then at the end, the ending of that film to me is so sort of odd. It's such an odd John Ford film to me because it ends with this sort of these, the, the men that died are memorialized and, and you know, immortal, you know, they're, they're sort of immortal and myth and legend. And they're used to sort of almost further the, the, the war effort. But also, you know, having just watched the film, they died because their commander was stupid <laughs> because he was right. an idiot. Cause he was this proud man. Um, but there's like Henry Fonda is fantastic in the film and John Wayne is fantastic. And, and John Agar, that was when he was still young and, and uh, before he kind of crashed and burned and, and he was very good. And, and Shirley Temple is in that film as an older, right. um, but it's one of those films that to me, it, 
like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, it sort of balances the two sides of what America is, you know, those men who are very brave, very courageous, but also like good men are going to die badly when bad men are in leadership, you know, kind of thing, which is also a lesson to kind of take from American history. So, so if I was going to pick between the two, I'd probably still go with Mr. Smith goes to Washington because I think it's a little better of a film and uh, Jimmy Stewart is just, that's one of his legendary performances. Um, but I feel like Forrest Gump is, is another good choice. Um, for one, it's, it's not one that I would just rewatch over and over again. Uh, sure. Like I'm not going to watch Forrest Gump multiple times in a year, but probably watch it like once a year on 4th of July. That, that kind of makes sense. That kind of makes sense. I, I like that choice. So, so, uh, listeners, I guess Forrest Gump and Mr. Smith goes to Washington, uh, choose between those two films. And if you can watch them both on, on 4th of July weekend and, uh, get back with us. <laughs> um, all right. So let's move back into Matthew and look at Matthew chapter 19, um, which is where, uh, Jesus says to Peter, he says, I will give unto thee or Peter and, and, or the other apostles. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's, let's, uh, yeah, go ahead. Um, I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, or some translations put it, um, which I think, and this again, it's, we're going to get back to kind of the same stuff we talked about a minute ago, that translation is going to be really key to how you understand this. Mm-hmm. And, and like, there's a million different, not a million, several different ways this verse has been translated because even that phrase, whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be, uh, shall be bound in heaven is like people, it's like, it's one of those phrases that doesn't translate neatly into English. It's sure. almost like past and future tense all at once. Like whatever thou shalt have or whatsoever thou shalt will have bound in earth or whatever. Like there's this, there's this kind sure. of mixture of tenses that makes it sort of hard. It's hard like what it's, it's almost like, uh, it's maybe a cheap example, but like what kind first, the chicken or the egg? It, it, yeah. it seems to come down to that type of argument from different people. It's like, okay, did he say it because it had already been done in heaven? Like whoever this is talking about, uh, are they saying this because God has already proclaimed it or is it because they say it that God ratifies it? Like which, which one is it? And that's, I think that's, that might be a one way to explain kind of what you're describing here, like this argument over how does this play out because of the, the tenses of these verbs and all this kind of stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, translation is complicated translation in the context of 2000 years of, of space between us and the people that, you know, spoke and wrote the original words makes it even more complicated. So in these two different sort of clauses almost have a nice correlation with sort of two aspects of the papal office uh, that are the, the source of the disagreement, which is like, is Peter, like, is the, is the Bishop of Rome, like first among equals, honored among equals, or is he sort of supreme? Like, does he have this uh, sort of authority and jurisdiction over the other bishops? Right. Um, And then this 
verse sort of points to like the the idea of of a, a sense of papal in, infallibility. Like, does the Bishop of Rome? Sure. Like almost sort of whether or not he has jurisdiction over other bishops, like does he also have this special gift that would say like he has this this gift to to bind, you know, whatever he binds on earth is bound in heaven and right. and has this gift to sort of speak um what's the term? Ex cathedra, is that the term? Yeah. Yeah, from the chair. Uh from the chair uh, in a way that is, you know, authoritative and and um do y'all call it an errant or infallible or am I splitting hairs? In, yeah, infallible. Infallible. Um, so you could you could almost you could almost have one without the other. Like you could say, yeah, I think the bishop of Rome has jurisdiction over the other bishops, but I don't think the second verse means he can speak infallibly, you know, from the chair. Mm-hmm. And you could almost say, yeah, you know what, I don't think he has jurisdiction over the other bishops. I think he is first among equals, but I do think that he can speak, you know infallibly from the chair they're going to bleed into each other more than a little bit probably but okay i I think but but you can if you tried really hard you kind of keep them on separate tracks um i i feel like um you know when we were when we were protestant still there was this um reinforcement going around in seminaries and things like that to take all the headers and the chapter uh numbers and verses and just kind of get rid of them and read scripture as a letter yeah, because that's the way. Like we didn't have numbers and like headings to separate one section from another. That we we really believe that God kind of um, inspired the authors to put things in the order that He put them in for a reason, for like the train of thought and everything to kind of flow as a story or a narrative to mm-hmm. to lead your your mind from truth to truth. So I understand that. You know there are different clauses, but I, I guess I would argue that you're that you're doing yourself a disservice by separating them out. It sounds like you're saying that, you know, you have one clause and it can mean one thing when he talks about Peter in this way, and then the next clause can it can mean something different because it's a separate clause. Oh no, it, it I, sounds I mean, like that. I'm, I'm not saying uh, that's why I'm, I'm bringing this up. I don't. Sure, I, no, that makes sense. Um. No, I, I I think it's one thought. Like I'm not trying to say like, oh look, these, these are two. Jesus said this, and then like a couple of days went by, and then he's like, oh by the way, guys, also this. But just that, um, you know, any two sentences in a paragraph are going to be related because you put related sentences in the same paragraph. But mm-hmm. then each sentence is also going to have its own point within the greater thought expressed within the paragraph. Okay, first, yeah, for um, sure. So, um, I mean. I think if I do think like if if you look at verse eighteen and you say that he is saying thou art thou art rock and upon rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom like if you're going to if you're going to look at he's he has this special um, he if like he's 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 imparting this special gifting or special jurisdiction or special authority to Peter in verse 18, then you would, it just makes logical sense. You're going to say mm-hmm. that's also what's happening in verse 19. Right. Um, right. But I'm just, I was just noticing as we were walking through it, that sentence one and then sentence two almost sort of encapsulated those two different aspects you. of, of uh, papal supremacy. Sure. Um, so, and so the, this is going to be very similar to, 
to what I said with the, the Orthodox teaching on, you know, upon this rock, what is that rock? What is this rock? And it's, you know, I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Is this, is he saying this just to Peter or is this a, something he's giving to, to the apostles or to the church in general? Mm-hmm. And, you know, at, in verse 16, he is he's talking to Peter. Uh-huh. But then in verse 20, it says, then he charged his disciples. They tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. There is this sort of continuity seemingly in this verse that it starts out, which I feel like you see often with Jesus where he'll start off talking like one disciple will say something. And generally, not always, but a lot of times it's a disciple saying something stupid. And then Jesus will start to address him. And by the time he gets done, he's talking to everybody. Like he's right. talking to the disciples. Sure. Um, and again, and, mm-hmm. and, and I've told you this before, I don't know if I was on the podcast, but like my disposition, the way I was raised is to, is pretty anti-Catholic. Like it's hard, like I'll admit, it's hard for me to read verses uh, that I have read most of my life uh, and been conditioned to read in a way and to understand them. Okay, well, we're going to understand it this way, mm-hmm. maybe because the Catholics understand it the other way. That there's still like sure I, that I've been honest, you know, I've been honest with you, and maybe on the podcast before. I, I can't really tell you how much like I, I feel like I'd be dishonest if I said, "Oh, that doesn't influence me at all." Like it probably still does. Like that was a sure. lot of my life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that yeah. was in me. So, um, so t- I'm sure to like to you and to you know any Catholics that we have listening, like me saying, I feel like in verse 19 you see this is is this transition from him talking to Peter to him speaking more broadly to the disciples, because in verse 20, you see, he is now addressing his, the disciples that that does probably sound like a cop out and probably sound like, well, you're reading that because you don't want to read it the other way. Mm -hmm. Um, But I will say one, one reason or the main reason I'm going to lean on and say, I'm reading it this way, not because I'm anti-Catholic, but because of, of what I've read in other passages is how similar this is to passages we see where Jesus does say similar things to the disciples, like in John 20, after he's, he's raised from the dead, where he breathes on his disciples and and gives them the, the authority to forgive sins and says, you know, whatever sins you forgive are forgiven. Whatever sins you do not forgive right. are not forgiven. And it's not the right. same thing. He's not saying the exact same thing there that sure. he says here. Sure. But to me, it's a very similar granting of authority. It's this, what you say happens, happens, or what you say happens will have happened. And what you say won't happen will not have happened. However, you're right. going to read it. Right. Um, and then... Oh, there's another one that I've, I've forgotten where it was now. But I feel like when Jesus sends out the, the 12 or sends out the 70, um, he gives a similar sort of similar authority. Um, yeah. and, and again, it's not it's not a one to one compare. It's not like I, there's not another place where Jesus uses these exact same words um, and, you know, very explicitly speaking to all the disciples. But I do feel like it's reading this and understanding it as a grant of authority to the apostles and to the church writ large. Like the church does have an infallible voice when it establishes or when it recognizes traditions, when it's had councils and and spoken. Mm -hmm. 
that that's in line with what we see in other passages of scripture, whereas him granting this special gift just to Peter is not something that, you know, that we found in other, in other scriptures and other passages. You know, I, th- I think another one that people might point to is in John, where he tells Peter to feed my sheep, but that didn't come with any sort of, you know, you have the power to make grass grow to feed the sheep or something that I've always sure. looked at that passage as sort of a, a reconciliation. But, but, it's, between... but it's the, it's the, it's the image of a shepherd. Sure. But we don't have that. Which, which is someone who leads and protects and, right. and guides the sheep. And he's speaking specifically to Peter and nobody else because John's following at a distance. Right. Right. He pulls Peter aside specifically and and asks him these questions and gives him these commands um, to to lead and to nourish his sheep. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, that I haven't looked at that particular passage uh, in John as closely because... I mean, no, I haven't. I was just thinking of of other, like another, I was like another passage he speaks to Peter and, um, sure. And sure. to me is distinct. And, and and again, that's when I think of, it's like, okay, yes, he is speaking to Peter specifically in that passage in John. Um, but also like, all right, well, what specifically happened with Peter that Jesus might be trying to address mm-hmm. is like Peter's betrayal. So, um, and again, this is, well- Okay. This is yeah. the uh, you know probably the Protestant speaking to me like that's that's how I've always read and understood that gotcha that passage um, and I don't think I've read and I'm sure I'm sure there is like a Catholic sort of tying in of that passage to to the doctrine of 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 papal supremacy. It's not one that I'm I've probably seen in passing, but I'm not super familiar with. Sure. Um, okay. So let's. Um, I'll give my quick answer to kind of some of the things you've mentioned. Uh, so when we go back to verse 17, he does specify Peter, right? As kind of mm-hmm. like the focus of at least part of what he's talking about. Because he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but Father is in heaven. Uh, also said that you're Peter, on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So, but what for even from verse 13, we do have a distinction, even in the Greek, between singular and plural. So there are places like in verse verse 13, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John, so on and so forth. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you? And that's plural right there. The right. word in Greek is plural. Who do, basically, it's it's like a, a plural, pos, um, if I'm not mistaken, like a, a plural possessive or something. I'm trying to think of the right uh, way to say that. But it basically, it's like y'all. Like yeah. who do yeah. who do y'all together say that I am? Right, as a group. So we know that Matthew or whoever translated Matthew, depending on how you want to take that argument, they had access to this plural possessive group word that he could use mm-hmm. in translating it. But when we get down in verse 17, when he starts addressing Simon Barjona or Peter, he he switches senses. So everywhere else in this passage, up until verse 20, which where he changes again, the word, whenever it says you, it's always singular, every time. So, blessed are you, singular, Simon Bar-Jonah. Um, this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter. Uh, verse 19, I will give you, singular, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you, singular, bind on earth, shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you, singular, 
loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. And then he warned the disciples that they, again, plural, should tell no one that he was the Christ. So that there, there does seem from a Catholic, the Catholic sure. argument yeah. would be that there does seem to be that the writer of this gospel had at his disposal, right, the the language to differentiate between a group of people that were being addressed and a singular person. Mm-hmm. And and there is at least obviously one example at the beginning of this thought where Jesus is given this exposition where he 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 shifts gears and focuses one on one particular person and every time he uses that singular expression is within that same thought so you peter you I'll give the keys to the kingdom you whoever looses and binds it'll be you know bound and, and loosed so i think that would be like the the quickest example or or way to uh, re- rebut that it just it seems like the writer had the option and had the words to make it like what the Orthodox and Protestants make it sound like really easy. It's kind of like the argument in my mind that you gave about the Eucharist. It's like, Jesus, how, how, how much, like how much simple easier would it have been for Jesus to use the plural word you to make this whole argument just go away? Like when you talk about the Eucharist and say, uh, this is my body. How much easier would it have been for Jesus, the all-knowing, the eternal one, who knew all these problems were going to come up, right, in the in the church? How much easier would it have been for him to just say, this is like my body? Or, or afterwards to kind of step in and say, now guys, just so you don't misunderstand, blank. Um, so how much simpler would it had to have been in order for it not to be confusing? Right or how much more explicit would he have had to been in order to to kind of clear up all the confusion? Yeah. And so I think we would use a similar argument here. We would say, okay, it would have been so easy for him to say y'all. We know he has this word. He's already <laughs> we used know he's, it. We know we know he's got a little southern in him. He can say right? y'all. He's not he, ashamed he, because he's already used it once or twice in this passage. Mm. But he's very specific to shift gears and to shift focus. Uh, in this particular this in this particular passage, uh, and I, and I would argue that uh, as far as like being a shepherd of the others, which I think you mentioned a little bit, we do see it maybe not explicitly taught, but we see it played out in other places, like Luke chapter twenty two. Jesus turns to to Peter and he says, like uh, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen the brethren. He seems to, out of all the others, focus in on Peter to have this kind of role of shepherding, right? Like, I'm, I'm expecting you to strengthen your brothers, which would include the other 12, right? Mm. Like, I, and I know that Orthodox aren't denying that Peter had a special role. Right, and, you right. Know, that, so, I, but I would, I would argue, I guess what I'm trying to argue is that we would see all these places where we see him live out this special role is a fulfillment of passages like Matthew 16. Another quick argument we would give, this passage in verse 19, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. It's almost a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 22, where the prophet Isaiah is is, uh, talking about, long story short, there's going to be some kerfluffle with the rightful king of Judah, I think it is. And so God selects a steward to rule in the place of the king 
while the king's away, like while the king is out of pocket, while the king is detained in another place. And so it it, it talks about in Isaiah chapter 22, where it, it almost, people can go look it up. I think it's 22, verse 22, where he names who this person is. And he says, basically verbatim, I will give, I'll put the keys of the kingdom on his shoulder, right? And basically, whoever he lets in will be let in, and whoever he lets out will be left out. Like he he will rule in place of the king to protect the city of Jerusalem while the king's away. Like he's the one that's responsible. He's the steward, right? Think Lord of the Rings and uh, the guy that was in charge of Gondor. Like until the king returns, this guy acts in place of the king. So because of the direct correlation with Isaiah 22, because there is a clear distinction between the plural and the singular. And then also because of what, again, I know we disagree or, or don't know how to explain our sides adequately enough, but verse 17, because of this idea of there being no practical distinction between a proper noun and a, like a descriptive noun, like it maybe would be one way to put it, like Peter as a proper name, and then the word you would, the feminine word you would use to just describe something that you would actually build something on or use practically. That's that's why when we read Matthew sixteen, again, it's not a, the greatest defense, but that's why we would say we think that that God has set Peter aside for a particular task. One more thing that I. I I took note of that you had mentioned the other passage where God gives his disciples, he breathes on them, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He gives them the, the power to forgive sins, mm-hmm. right? Or not uh, forgive sins. But or he, to he not has, forgive yeah. sins. Mm-hmm. But it's very specific in that passage that he's talking about sins. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, and in this particular passage, again, to correlate it with what he's quoting, which is Isaiah 22, we would say that the context is much broader than whether you're forgiving sins or not. So, so we would say that one of them is more administrative and one of them is min- more ministerial. Like one passage is, is ministerially focused. He's, he's giving them the gift of the Holy Spirit so that he can send out his disciples to do the work of the church, to bring redemption to the world. And in this particular passage, he is dealing with lordship and authority and governance. That that would be like a what one way you know I might would try one to phrase it <clears throat> between the two. No, and there is I definitely think there is uh, like it's not the same, but it was just similar to me. But I understand the distinction too you're drawing between the administrative and and ministerial. Um, we and and let me let me say too, Brian that. And I may have mentioned this before. We draw so heavily on the tradition of the church to understand how these passages are supposed to be lived out, both Orthodox and and Catholic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's probably going to be where a lot of disagreements come into, because I would be one of the first to argue. And granted, I'm not. I've not been a Catholic for the longest amount of time. But I would be one of the first to argue that there are a lot of people in the Catholic Church that ascribe too much authority, maybe, to the Pope, that if if not explicitly, implicitly, right. they grant far too much authority to the Pope than the than the even the Roman Catholic side of the church has ever even tried to grant him. Mm. So there seems to be this 
this attitude in some Catholic circles today that basically says things or, or lives out like that, you know, if if the Pope were to send out a tweet from the toilet, that it's infallible. <laughs> there, you know, there is this sort of, I've noticed, uh, and I've noticed it more with St. Francis than with uh, uh, yeah. St. Benedict, um, who seemed like, to me, as an outsider, I was I was Protestant then, but like Benedict seemed much more um, cautious, yeah. I guess, and and sort of well, I mean, he's definitely more conservative. But there's this like cult of celebrity around Francis. That I don't remember yes. there being around Benedict. That I think probably now you're seeing like celebrity culture and 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 the Catholic doctrine of of the papacy being mm-hmm. conflated in a yes. lot of like popular imagination. For sure. Yeah. Pope, uh, Pope Benedict was praised by so many different people, East and West for being someone that some said theoretically could have been the one to unite both sides of the church. Mm. He was, he was very positive, encouraging of Eastern liturgies and the Eastern expression of faith uh, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I, I think that there is a, a place even in Roman Catholic circles in its tradition, I, I would argue the tradition, to say that the, the Pope can be infallible, but there are very specific and stringent rules on what all that is supposed to look like. But the, the hope and the argument would be to say that the church would not move forward without the Pope that the Pope, kind of like a father of a family, right? That there is, which is what Pope means, right? It's Papa, it's father. That just like a good father leaves room for the expression of his children and for his kids to have different roles of authority in his home uh, in different situations, kind of like a parent might leave one kid in charge while mom and dad go on date or so on and so forth. Conditionally, yes. To, to, say, to say that, hey, um, this is... This is what God has given to me to govern and to shepherd, but a, a good father knows how to delegate and knows when to step back and say, hey, this is not something that I need to decide. Um, and he also knows when to step in and say, look, this is something that's, we're, we're all, like, we're all going to have to get on the same page here. And I, I think that's probably a far more healthy view of the papacy to to look at it in terms of what a godly and humble father would do and how he leads his home. Um, so there have been abuses, and I don't want it to sound like what we're saying is that Peter uh, and those who have held his seat since then uh, can't can't make mistakes, even grievous mistakes. Because uh, they can, and the Catholic Church has recognized that she has had her fair share of degenerate and very unsaintly popes, and so we would humbly ask the world to judge us by our best and not our worst, because our worst is pretty horrible, um, and we don't want to we don't want to deny that or to try to overlook that. But we also believe that God has given us His ideal, right? And that that is a church united. Um, I think East and West would both agree with that statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where the West would where the West would step up and say, and that church not only needs to be united, 
but it, it needs to be united under the under shepherd that God has given to be the one who holds the keys to the kingdom and who uh, who's been who is a constant example in the New Testament as someone who God pulls aside and sets apart and calls to a particular purpose. Yeah, I think like to and I haven't looked. I remember you mentioning the steward thing, I think back in episode 10, when we talked about it a little bit and it's not something I've looked into. I don't really think I'd even heard that aspect of it. I don't remember reading that in the book, although it may have been there. Um, but that like, to me, that's sort of like the most, this is going to sound insulting, but I don't mean it to be like, that's the most sensible thing you've said <laughs> about <laughs> it. Like, okay, like that I can sort of follow. Um, I think the, um, and so I'm not really going to push back on that because I don't really have any anything to push back with it on uh, or push back on it with, I should say. Um, like, I do think this, the distinction of using the singular uh, is maybe like maybe overplayed a little because Jesus, you do see that word used when Jesus is addressing crowds um, in, in the singular sense. And, and that may be where, again, our, our grasp of language uh, or mine is is insufficient to to say it's the same. I'm I'm not saying it could couldn't be. I'm just I'm just curious. I mean, it's the same, the same Greek word in the same case, which I'm not really I don't know about Greeks, but even it is you like it's, it's like when he says to the crowd, you know, if your right hand offends you, so it it's sort of one that's used in like these some places very clearly like singular, and some places sort of in this tension between right. I'm talking to sort of about a singular thing to a group, uh-huh. uh, but where he's using it to address a group, but maybe something they do individually while still so, using it to address a group. So it would, it would sound like you're saying that, that God has given to each of the apostles the keys, and they have the authority to do it independently of the others. Because because that would be the that would be the way I would look at you know if if your hand offends you cut it off it's like right. saying well he's talking to a group yes but they're meant to take it and apply it to themselves personally like it, it's not it's not God talking to a group of people and saying okay you uh, have the responsibility as a group if your hand offends you cut it off so I have the right to cut off <laughs> Brian's your, hand. Yeah. If Brian's hand offends me, or if Brian hands offends himself, so if you were to take that and you were to apply that type of hermeneutic to the passage in Matthew 16, it would seem like it'd be really easy to move to the point where you said, God is giving each of these apostles individually the keys to the kingdom that they can use independently of one or the other. Yeah, in er, which case so... you in, you ends up you end up with twelve heads. And I, I, or twelve I just, bishops. Well, if yeah, you well, if you're going to look 12, at it administratively, bishops. then the administrative gifting that the bishops have. So he he's given the keys to the of the kingdom to each of those bishops individually. If he's anticipating similar to what we see in Revelation, you know that each each bishop is the head of a church in a certain because ideally the way it works is the bishop is the head of a church. In a but city. In this particular passage, he says the church. Not not your church in your particular city. He says the church. Well, says, at that point he's talking about kingdom. I'll give the keys of the kingdom. Right. Okay. I guess right. this is so, where we would conflate the difference in how uh what 
what was the word you used? The um, clauses. Right. Whereas, yeah. whereas we see Peter, this rock, I'll build my church as within the same like line of thought as the keys of the kingdom. Right. Yeah. And so on and so forth. But he said he didn't say church. And we've already seen that this writer knows he can use the word church. He didn't use it. He's kingdom. Yeah, that, I feel <laughs> like that's splitting hairs there. But. Oh, it is. At this point, I'm freelancing. So, <laughs> um, um, but that was, um, this has been, this has been good. I, I really enjoyed it though. So. Yeah. One, one more question, I guess, that I would ask. Um, and I feel like it kind of goes back to, again, I, I, I don't know, like for me, and I could be wrong in my view of these interpretations, but I see a consistency in certain ways of viewing scripture and tradition. Uh, so like I would ask the same question. So like when we talk about the Lord's supper, which we did in, I think the last episode, mm. I don't know if we published it yet at the time of this recording, but we talked about how that um, there are places where the church fathers talk about the Lord's supper as as something that's not explicitly like his body and his blood. Like it is a, it is a meal of remembrance. There is symbol right in it, mm-hmm. but they never deny even in those passages, the reality of the, the body and the blood being actual body and blood. Does that, does that make sense? Um, so there, yes, there, are, yes, there, makes are, sense, yeah. there are places where they talk about it being more than just the body and blood but they never deny the reality of right. the body and blood of our Lord. So maybe for a, a completely different podcast, you'd probably need to be, but I'm just sitting here thinking within the church fathers, we do see places where the church fathers give incredible credence to the, the authority of the Bishop of Rome. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of places you see a lot of deference given to given to the bishop a lot of honor. Like when, um, I think there's some, some letters and epistles and accounts, like when Clement would pass through different churches, you know, right. on journeys who, who was the Bishop of Rome, the, sure. The amount of, of honor and, and deference given to him and, and seeking his counsel and input and advice and, and things yeah. like that. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of different places that I, I would argue describe different aspects of the Pope's authority or the Bishop of Rome's authority. The, my question would be, again, probably for another podcast, where is the first place that the Orthodox would turn to and say, here is where the church pushes back and denies the Pope's authority to do X, Y, and Z? Yeah, no, I think that's a good, that's a good question. And one, I don't, I haven't, I mean, I've looked at that and read that some, but it's been a bit, but I do think if we want to like make episode 30, another one of these that maybe we take it, like we've talked about sort of church structure. We've talked about like this passage and maybe the next one we do, we kind of look at, all right, well, let's look at the church fathers, the church fathers and early church history and, and what we see there. Sure. Um, Cause they okay. dug a little bit into that in that podcast that you sent over, um, which I thought mm-hmm. was, was really interesting. Uh, and there was some good, some good back and forth on that. So, cause I do think that's the next, the next step you take on this, this question, the back and forth is that we've looked at, sure. we've looked at this. I mean, if we want to spend another one talking about other passages with Peter in the new Testament or, or the idea of the steward, we could, but when the next one or two then get into all right, well, let's look at the early church fathers. Where do we see, you know, 
from my perspective, where do we see the first hints of their deference and respect for the Bishop of Rome being limited in some way? Well, like being limited in some way, or if I was going to say like, where do I see them say, you know, express it in a way that seems explicitly like papal infallibility and and papal supremacy? Like what do we see Mm -hmm. representations in the church that would seem to support one, but clearly not support the other, you know, one way or the other. Sure. Sure. So, yeah. But no, I think that's the next, a good place to take it next time. So, so episode 30 people, you just got like nine random ones to, to, uh, (laughs) to endure between uh, here and then. But, but I do think that would be, I think that's the next place to go with it. And so I didn't, I didn't prep on that tonight. So I I didn't either. I, I really didn't. So I, but it was just, it was on my mind as we were kind of wrapping up on, on the Matthew 16 thing. I just, I would be interested because I don't, I, I've read some books uh, on orthodoxy in my pilgrimage to this point. I just remember getting that feeling that it was, it felt kind of like the Baptist argument against the Eucharist. It, it felt like they were saying, well, there are places that they don't say that explicitly. The church fathers don't say that the Pope has the right to appoint a bishop or something like that. So because it doesn't always say it, then we don't have to believe that it's church tradition. Sure. You know, but again, we, we can get into that some other time. Yeah, I'm sure we will. And I think, I think that'd be a good, a good back and forth as well. So for sure. Uh, but as far as this passage goes, I think we've both gone over it fairly well and you know as deep and as uh as pedantic as we are uh, educated enough to do so and maybe For a sure. tad bit beyond that so yeah um, but like you said there are a lot of other resources out there with scholars and really well educated people on both sides of mm-hmm. of the debate that go into it uh, in depth that episode of um pints with uh aquinas is, is really excellent um and there are other places you can find it as well so if you've liked what you've heard and you would like to hear it more in depth and more in detail uh, by people that are smarter, at least maybe not far smarter than us, but at least a little bit smarter than us, then there are lots definitely, of there. definitely more educated. Yes, definitely, definitely more Too educated, um, especially in, in regards to that. I'm, right. I'm, I'm borderline overeducated myself, uh, <laughs> trying to you know trying to make up for my general natural lack of talent in that area. Um, but, uh, but yeah, not, not in that. So I can, I can explain the rule against perpetuities if you would like an uh, internet audience, but that will not aid you in, uh, picking a side on the great papal debate. So, um, Adam, any, any closing thoughts before we sign off for this episode? I don't think so. I think that's, I think it's been good. It's been a fun conversation. Thanks for, well, as always for agreeing to to have these conversations. It's yeah, fun. it was, it was a lot of fun. I, I really, uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, so I think next episode, we've got a, uh, a topic recommendation from, from a listener, uh, who asked about sort of a <coughs> communal life and how our faith is, is kind of lived out in everyday life as, as a Catholic and as an Orthodox, um, looking forward to getting, uh, to getting into that. It was a really, really great question. Um, and uh, ask much more articulately than I just put it. Um, so we'll dig into that when we come back for episode 21 uh, in the near future. But until then, internet audience, thanks so much for hanging out with us and putting up with us. Adam, same to you. Thanks for hanging out and putting up with me and also with my sister. 
Uh, and uh, <laughs> hope you all have a great night. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.